This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, MD Advantage, UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, a show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and answers all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's a pleasure to be with you today on November 2nd. Um, I want to uh, welcome all of you, and it's a lovely day outside, uh, but great to have you listening to us today. Today we're going to have a great show, and I wanted to get into some specific topics in medicine with respect to how medicine is going. So we're going to be having a discussion about Medicare. We're hearing a lot about Medicare for all, but it's a complicated system, and I know that. I recently turned 65, became Medicare age, and I have been inundated every day with some new mail, piece of mail with a program for Medicare. And if I, I mean, I went to medical school. I have a master's degree in management, and I still find it hard to understand who pays for what. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that in one of our segments in the second segment. In the second half of our show, my guest is going to be Dr. Setu Vora. Now, many of you will remember Dr. Vora is the chief medical officer for the Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation. And he's one of these docs who is right out there on the cutting edge. He's a pulmonologist. But when it comes to trying to change the health of a population, Dr. Vora is an expert. And he's the one who's taught us a little bit about the 5-15-30 plan, right? Five portions of fruits and vegetables, 15 minutes of meditation, 30 minutes of exercise every day in terms of how to treat illness and stay healthy. He's also taught us a lot about the childhood scores and predictors of chronic medical conditions in children based on childhood trauma, and we're going to talk today about health literacy. So I'm looking forward to that in the second half of the show. Uh, I was on with Steve Parker earlier today and uh, talking about mixed martial arts. Last weekend, uh, I was at Mohegan Sun, where we had two shows, Friday night and Saturday night, with Bellator MMA. So you have to understand, so mixed martial arts are a combination of combat sports. Combat sports are broadly defined as any sport where you put two people in a ring to beat each other up and one person comes out victorious based on a variety of rules. We're most familiar with boxing, which has been the longest uh, sport that we're familiar with in terms of combat sports, but there are many others now. Uh, There's Muay Thai, uh, there's kickboxing, uh, jiu-jitsu, So MMA started in 1992, and it put athletes in the ring who could use any of these different techniques to cause a submission of their opponent. It has evolved into becoming one of the fastest-growing, if not the fastest-growing spectator sport in this country. They pack a huge crowd at the casinos to watch this, and they've hyped it up quite a bit. They, They put them in a cage as if they're animals, 
so there's there's a lot going on uh, from that standpoint. But the contact is very real. This is not like WWE. This is not choreographed in any way. So Steve actually brought up a good point is, you know, am I a fan of the sport? And the answer is flatly no. Uh, my job there is to be an advocate for the combatants in terms of even when they know it's not safe to continue, that I make sure I stop the event and advise the council on and the commissioner on who should be allowed to get in the ring and who should not based on pre-fight physicals. And then we do a post-fight exam to see if they need to get further medical attention that night. So that's my role as the ringside physician. So, again, it's, it's fast as growing. It, it's huge, uh, especially in casinos. You'll see many of these events occur in casinos. It attracts a very different demographic to the casino, whereas the casino is usually... With the sport of boxing, especially, it's usually an older crowd. Um, This is a much younger, youthful crowd who actually participate in the sport, Uh, as opposed to boxing, where it's typically people who are at the lower socioeconomic rung of the ladder, so to speak. Uh, Many of the people in MMA are professionals and have jobs in other areas. Uh, I know several young physicians who do MMA and do it in a gym and uh, use it as a form of workout. So it's an interesting sport to watch and to see how it develops. Uh, Last night, I spent the evening on the sideline for the UConn football game. Uh, Tough night, tough night all around, not only for the game, but for the fans. It was cold out there. Yet, despite a small crowd, many people stayed till the end. And you start wondering, why are they here? Um, You know, our team was losing badly. But it was interesting to watch people show support for the team. And it's really a time of socialization uh, when you look at the tailgating. First of all, the tailgating is phenomenal. I think some people just come for the tailgating uh, because there's so much food and people decorate their vehicles, bring antique vehicles. Uh, Last night, the... Uh, tailgate of the night was an antique army truck. So uh, that socialization is a really good thing. It's it's important to get out and even that feeling of being behind the team and feeling a part of the action is key. So uh, this, despite the elements, I mean, it's football and it's becoming football weather. And despite uh, our team at the University of Connecticut struggling, I was just happy to see folks getting out there and enjoying themselves. As always, we talk a little bit about the time change, right? We're going back to Eastern Standard Time. So we fall behind and bring our clocks back. It's one of those exercises that you try to figure out when you're doing it, why are we doing it? Uh, We know that there are health implications that are negative for trying to shift our biologic clock twice a year every year. But we still do it. And and I, I don't even have a horse in this race, whether we go to daylight saving time all the time or Eastern Standard Time all the time. I don't care. But just pick one and let's do it. Because we do know that there are negative health implications by trying to change your sleep cycle twice a year. 
So for whatever reason, I think elected officials need to look into this. And I know there are always several bills to change things, but they never really get anywhere. Next up, we're going to be back, and I'm going to chat a little bit about two things. We're going to talk about Medicare and try to decipher what it all means, make it clear, and answer questions. Uh, the phone number's here, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You can also contact me directly at info at alessimd.com. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and we're talking a little bit about Medicare in this segment. Uh, we're hearing a lot about Medicare for all, but I think we, we need to learn something a little bit about the healthcare system and how we got into this. So <clears throat> health insurance was not a big deal in the 1940s it, because, well, I mean, people went out and purchased health insurance, but most people paid for their care. When there became extreme demands on hiring employees during the post-war period, employers decided that we could give them an extra benefit. We'll buy health insurance for our employees. And since then, it's become a given that employers are responsible to provide health care for the employees. But obviously, the market has changed in the last 50 years or so, actually 60 years or so. And we have really this obligation that employers have had <clears throat> to provide health care. Things really got switched up in 1965 when Lyndon Johnson signed in the bill of establishing Medicare. Medicare is a federal program to provide health care assistance for people over the age of 65 who qualify, people who are permanently and totally disabled who qualify, and for the offspring of people who are disabled until a certain age. So with that, we have a system that has become so complex, it's hard for even, it's hard for anyone to understand. So let me try and give you some of the helpful hints that I've understood. Well, first of all, with Medicare, you have a Part A. Part A is the part that pays for hospitalization. So most folks, like myself, when we have to sign up for Medicare, you have to sign up within three months of your 65th birthday if you're going to get the full benefit. So I still have health insurance from an employer, so I really don't need the Medicare benefits, but I need to sign up. So you sign up for Part A, and that's because Part A, technically called original Medicare, um, is without charge. So we don't pay a premium for Part A, but you're enrolled in the program. It's not till you get to Part B that you start paying. Now, Part B is the medical part of it. So this is all your hospital visits and procedures. So Part B is when you start paying premiums. And in 2019, those ranged from $135.50 a month to $460.50, depending on your income. 
So it's an income-based program. Now, this is not an entitlement program because you've paid into this. You've been paying into your Social Security every time you've worked. So you've essentially bought an insurance policy called Medicare. And with that, you have to pay some premium to get the Part B part of it. Now, Medicare covers about 80% of any medical costs after you meet your deductibles. The deduct deductibles are about $1,300 for Part A uh, and about 185 for Part B. So the, the deductibles are relatively small, but it still only pays 80%. So now you have to figure out how to pay the extra 20%, and that's where you get to a new thing called Medigap. And Medigap is private insurance that's a supplement to Medicare to pay for whatever Medicare doesn't pay for. So, again, you're going to pay a monthly premium for that. And, again, it could range from $100 to several hundred dollars per month depending on how much it's going to cover. So you have now Medigap that you have to really decipher and decide, do you need it and how much of it do you need? I haven't gotten to the part where you have to pay for medication, and that's Part D. So Part D of Medicare is a separate charge, and that is an additional charge to Medicare to cover prescription drugs. What has begun to really complicate this and what I think I'm getting all these mailings about and most of our listeners are getting mailings about are the Medicare Advantage plans. So this is a private plan that is put forth and is paid for by Medicare. So you sign up for a plan, and there are several of them in our area. Uh, Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield has one. I know Connecticut has one that uh, several of my neighbors have said they've experienced. Uh, there's one uh, sponsored by Hartford Hospital, Care Partners, <clears throat> which um, provides a network, and your Medicare money, the money Medicare would have paid for your health, goes to the program. So they get that money, and you pay a premium to that company to have the Medicare Advantage program. Um, typically, they have a high out-of-pocket premium. Sometimes it could vary between 3000 and 10000 a year, uh, depending on where you live and depending on what network you have. Now, when I say what network you have, you have HMOs or you have a PPO. So in picking these plans, you really have to decide... It's, it's such an individual choice because you have to decide where you are in life and where you want to be. For example, you want to choose a network of physicians and hospital and providers that you use, and you want to make sure they're in your network. So with Medicare plus Medigap, if you do that, you really have access to any physician in the United States who accepts Medicare. So that's a really wide network. If you have Medicare Advantage, it's typically a more restricted network. These are doctors who agree to take a reduced fee to provide care for you in order to have the volume come into their office. 
So you have to be comfortable with a limit, a much more limited network. So a lot of folks here in Connecticut also spend time in Florida. So you want to make sure that whatever Medicare Advantage plan you're using will also cover physicians in Florida or wherever you go to a warmer climate. So it's important to really sit down and look at all of this. The other idea is to figure out how to manage costs. So with Medicare Advantage, you don't pay a monthly premium. So you only have to pay a high deductible if you need care. If you are relatively healthy, this might be a good way to go and not have to manage your your finances as tightly. It's almost like with Medicare Advantage, you almost it's almost like catastrophic insurance in the sense that I have the insurance there, but it's going to help me in a catastrophe. So, all right, so I have to pay the first $3,000 or $5,000. Who cares when I need a $30,000 or $100,000 operation, which Medicare Advantage will take over? Uh, the, the issue with Medicare and Medigap is now you've got two more premiums to pay every year. So it's important to figure out if you're going to ma- how you're going to manage your finances in this regard. And then obviously there's drug coverage. And you really want to make sure you have that coverage either with Part D or with Medicare Advantage, which is good because typically those plans have drugs included in the Medicare Advantage plan. Now, does that mean it covers all drugs? No. You need to find out what drugs are on their list of preferred drugs and make sure your medications are on that list so that they are covered. So really, you really have to look at a lot of different factors in picking a Medicare plan, which gets us to the point of health literacy. Health literacy, and, and we've talked about this briefly before, I mean, health literacy is the capacity to understand basic health information and make appropriate health decisions. This takes just picking a plan that fits what you need takes a lot more than basic health information. And I think we're surprised to find a lot of people don't have the health literacy to understand that. And that is a problem. We're now talking about Medicare for all. So we're going to take a complicated system that very few people understand thoroughly and try to apply it to the entire population of the United States. I have been an advocate for a single-payer system. I think we're going there. But I'm not necessarily sure that Medicare for all and the complexities involved in it are going to be the right way to go for all of us. So with that, we're going to take a short break now, and then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Setu Vora. We're going to talk a little bit more about health literacy. We're going to talk about Medicare, and we're going to take a look at the future of health care. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's my great pleasure to introduce my guest today, Dr. Setu Vora. Uh, Dr. Vora. Uh, is 
a pulmonologist, and he is um, he is the chief medical officer for the Mashantucket Pequot tribe, and uh, is with us today. Welcome, say to. No, we are good. Uh, how are you doing? All right, pretty good. So, what we talked a little bit just in the past, a little bit about health literacy, and the importance in that of looking at the future. Now you're you're pretty famous on this show. I mean, you gave us the five fifteen thirty plan. Um, five right, five vegetables or fruits, fifteen minutes yeah. of mindfulness, and thirty minutes of exercise oh, every day. Right, and right. we looked at the childhood scores uh, for trauma. Um, mm-hmm. before. Uh, so what do you have for us today? I think it comes more down to basics. And, uh, you know, we, we, Tony, you and I know there's so much medical research, so much published scientific evidence. I think the real challenge for us as uh, healthcare professionals, uh, for those who are in charge of policy and governance, those who are in charge of our systems, is to how may we translate all this wonderful information into action. I think there needs to be more research on implementation science um, than what we traditionally do. So let's talk about it. What do you mean by implementation science? It's just putting into practice what we already know really works for improving health and, and well-being. And how may we get that information to the people that need it the most, the most vulnerable communities, and how may we empower them with that timely information and really uh, you know, activate the population to take action to improve their own health and well-being. So and ha- that's the challenge yeah, of health literacy. Yeah, but haven't we tried to do that? I mean, we have all these health classes uh, in in school now, I mean, everybody's. Resp- uh, I never took that. I mean, granted, I'm much older, but th- you know, th- we have health education, uh, we have physical education. We try to do that through the school system. Um, right. Why isn't that working then? I think we perhaps would have to take uh, a couple of lessons from our colleagues in the marketing and communication department. Uh, if we are able to. Um, really simplify the healthcare concepts so that it becomes sticky and make it really attractive to implement. I, I, I'm not sure if I have all the answers, but more and more I'm doing this uh, healthcare uh, practice and uh, you know um, strategic uh, implementation. I realize that it's the real challenges in communication. Okay, so. Let's take a look at it. There's probably two ways of us to communicate. There's the stick or the carrot, correct? I mean, so we've tried to legislate, right? We've tried to legislate good health practices. Let's take smoking, right? Mm -hmm. Smoking would be a perfect example. Um, People used to be able to smoke anywhere. And by restricting where people could smoke or where it was accessible, we've seen the number of adult smokers go down dramatically. And that's cool. so that's that's kind of worked, but again, that's the stick and not the carrot. Rather than say, listen, here's the reward. You're not going to get lung cancer if you stop smoking. That didn't seem to work. Um, Correct. So 
is legislation a good way to go? I mean, you know, to, we're dealing with it now with vaping, for example, yeah. right? So I agree. Uh, right. I think, you know, Tony, it probably has to be both, you know, uh, action at the individual and the community level, but more so at the structural governance and policy level to make it really meaningful across broader uh, swath of uh, population. Now, you mentioned the smoking cessation, you know, smoking uh, ban in in public places. Uh, at least we have some, uh, you know, research data from uh, New York City that just banning smoking in restaurants and public places resulted in a significant drop in the number of heart attacks in uh, New York City. Now, you know, you can argue whether it's, uh, you know, definitely causative or was it just an association. But more and more research seems to favor that when you have good policy that is implemented at source, then the effect of that is much more amplified than the individual, uh, you know, uh, health literacy awareness campaigns would yield. It's not to say that we don't need that. I think we need both. So uh, the other thing, when you, when you look at this, I mean, they've used the media pretty effectively, again, looking at smoking, right? Um, you know, the commercials are out there with people who have had lung cancer and are have severe respiratory problems. Do you think yeah. those things, when you mention the media, are those things effective? Um, yes, and I think uh, similar to our specialist colleagues in uh, media and communication, they always do what they call A-B testing, right? So they may have different copy of the same message, and they would test it out on user groups and see which one resonates more. We don't have the same degree of sophistication in our healthcare communication. You know, and, and when you look at the, you know, the concept of health literacy, the numbers are pretty shocking, Tony. You know, it says, uh, you know, that health literacy essentially is, um, you know, the degree to which all of us have the capacity to get the information and then process that information and then understand the basic health info so that we can make appropriate health decisions and choices, right? Right. And the number of us Americans uh, who have adequate health literacy is under 20%. Right. So now we've got 80% of people who don't have the capacity to make a health decision, and we're asking them to make fairly complex health decisions. Um, Correct. So how do we correct that? Yeah, and you know, uh, what was interesting to me was uh, that we would tend to associate health literacy with the level of education, and it turns out even if someone has a PhD, they could have uh, health illiteracy. So it doesn't necessarily correlate with the degree of education, although we know that people with uh, high school or less education obviously have, uh, you know, reading, uh, writing numerical uh, challenges that impairs their health literacy. But not to say that a college professor is always likely to be health literate. Well, you know, let's get back to basic literacy. I mean, many people living in the United States today who are citizens don't speak English. Correct. Um, so, we, you know, we, we're getting really to basic literacy from that standpoint. Uh, yeah. So how do we apply this? So we've talked about smoking. What other 
chronic diseases do you think we can have some impact on? You know, um, it comes down to lifestyle um, and obviously, you know, the social determinants of health. That seems to have much more impact on healthcare outcomes than the acute medical care that you and I are trained in, you know, a proficient in. Um, you know, there's a neat little experiment going on right now, and I'm not sure how you feel about Facebook and other social media in general. And uh, perhaps I think we all can agree that technology is just a tool. It can be used for the good or for other nefarious purposes. Sure. But regardless of, you know, uh, the debate raging around the role of social media in our, you know, daily lives, Facebook just launched its personal um, health program. Are you familiar with that, Tony? I'm not. So essentially, if you if you happen to be one of the Facebook users, and there are about, you know, billions and billions of sure. healthcare users out there, um, all you need to do is accept the Facebook's, uh, you know, population health, personal health uh, option, and it automatically knows, or you can input your sex and age, and that's all you need to do. And they have put in a lot of safeguards, at least that's what they told me at the conference, that they put a lot of safeguards into making sure that this data resides only on your device and it's not aggregated or sold or anything. So it does, does take a leap of faith to trust. <laughs> you bet. Uh, social media company but i think they already know your age and sex anyway so if you are comfortable with sharing that it gives you a personalized you know health primary prevention map and it was i tried it out over the uh, last two days and it was fairly accurate for basic stuff such as i put in my you know age i'm 48 and male and it told me that i should have uh, my cholesterol check, and it gave me the option whether I could, I already had it done, sugar check. Uh, it asked me if I should get my colonoscopy planning started or get at least a stool test done, made sure I had my flu shot this season. Stuff that is very basic but really powerful in reducing uh, preventable death from cardiovascular disease or cancer. This is just the beginning of how maybe leverage uh, platforms that people are already interacting with and use that to disseminate really trusted, timely, valuable, commercial-free, bias-free health information. That's the way to go. Yeah, well, it, it sounds like it because it's so important. And, you know, Facebook just isn't an American institution. I mean, it's international. So um, that may be a great way of reaching a lot of folks. Um, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Setu Vora. Uh, we're talking about future trends in healthcare. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and today I'm joined by Dr. Setu Vora, and we're talking about future trends in healthcare in general. Uh, Setu, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about smoking. Um, but, you know, we're faced with some new controversies now. And, you know, we pick smoking because it should be obvious to everyone at this point that smoking isn't good for you. Right. Should be. Absolutely. It, it should also be fairly obvious to everybody that immunizations are good for you and it's helped us. So uh, I don't want to get political about the immunization discussion, but. 
do you feel that we're taking a step backwards in some respect with regard to uh, immunization and infectious disease, or even with the vaping thing? I mean, uh, you know, this whole vaping thing, we know that it's dangerous now, and yet you still see people vaping. How do we get around this? Have we taken a step backwards? Um, Perhaps in a sense that there is a lot of disinformation out there whether it is generated both locally or from uh, other sources. And, uh, you know, there's this counterculture of being very natural. And some of, sometimes that comes at the expense of science. And this generation, our generation, you know, um, or even younger, have not seen the ravages of, uh, you know, vaccine-preventable diseases. So the collective memory for those deadly scourges is much, much, much fainter. So we take it for granted. Um, I trained in India, and I had seen the firsthand experience of tetanus ward. Now, we don't see tetanus in U.S., thankfully. You know, um, so my, my point is, with uh, distance and insulation, that we are so protected against these common uh, infectious disease like measles or mumps, rubella, because of vaccines, we forget that they can come back if we let our guard down. It's interesting because you bring up the foreign component. And, uh, you know, people say, well, these, these people come in here, they're foreigners and bringing us disease. You know, that's not necessarily true because vaccines are much sought after in foreign countries. They don't have uh, this same problem unless... They're a population that's living isolated. So um, this has really become an industrialized nation phenomenon. I can't say it's just America because it's in England there's, um, you know, this still going on where people have taken that step backward. Uh, What about vaping? Where where we are with this vaping thing? I mean, you're a pulmonologist. I mean, vaping was uh, promoted as a safer alternative, somewhat similar to the, you know, branding uh, rebranding efforts by big tobacco uh, by calling it light or slim, you know, cigarettes. Right. So that it seems like it is much less of a risk. And I think the same thing happened with vaping. They were allowed to be less regulated up front so that they could do creative marketing with uh, different flavors, entice a totally new demographic users, and it made it discreet, smell-less, so it's much more um, likely to be adopted by, you know, tech-type uh, uh, new, new groups. And especially with the uh, public prohibition of uh, smoking, this became a surreptitious kind of, a, you know, under-the-cover option for a lot of folks. But Tony, at the, at the root of that comes down to the same simple question. If we know certain things are harmful for us, why would we... Uh, start doing it or continue doing it, right? And essentially it comes down to our own perception of the risk associated with that um, and perhaps underlying factors such as some, uh, you know, mainly it's an addiction. Nicotine is a powerful substance affecting specific parts of our brain receptors and you're a neurologist, so you're the expert in that. So the real question is why do we take risks and why maybe invite addictions? Those are the basic uh, components to look at besides, you know, uh, prevention measures that we can put into place. 
Seto, in wrapping up, I want to touch on what do you see as the future? Just came back from the health meeting in Las Vegas. Um, and what do you see? Where are we going with this? I think you, you alluded to that with Facebook, but yeah, you know, you're on the front lines of this. I mean, you're managing care for a Native American tribe and and a far-reaching Native American tribe and probably other Native American tribes. So, uh, you know, you're right on the front line of trying to take a population and make it more healthy. Where do you right. see us going? I think, uh, you know, at large you know, uh, conferences such as health, you would come back thinking technology is the answer, right? Yeah. If, if it is app-based, if it's digital, it's going to solve everything. And the more and more we are doing this work together, Tony, it's a clear realization that you need a high touch along with the high tech approach. It's not and or. Uh, There will always be emerging need for telemedicine. Uh, You know, uh, the role of artificial intelligence will be more and more. The role of robotics in healthcare will will really explode. Um, There's a lot of interest in personalized precision medicine of knowing exactly what your genes are so that your medication prescription can be tailored to that. Yep. So those are extremely exciting times ahead of us. You know, how, how may we start using voice in healthcare uh, engagement with uh, elders or kids? They can just ask Alexa about their health concerns, right? Yep. And um, so those are the technological advances that will change the way medicine is practiced. But we would have to still go back to more fundamental questions about basic human rights, access to clean air and water, the reduction of impact of climate change. How may we become more resilient against that? Um, and essentially reducing, you know, adverse childhood events. Say too. Yeah, say too. Thank you so much. Um, this has been so helpful, um, and I look forward to always getting you back on. Good luck, and thank you I for all you do. Thank you. Right. Bye bye. Bye bye. This has been a great show. It's been great sharing the day with you. Next week, I will be away um, with the Professional Bull Riders World Finals, so we have a taped show for you then. Um, next up is Garden Talk with Len. Please remember to help save lives by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor. You can do that today by going to DonateLife.org. Many thanks to our studio producer. Mike Olko has been on the board today, and Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, MD Advantage, UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.